0: Welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast and today we have a really special treat. We have April Davila is with us and she is an author. Just wait until you hear about this book and also co-founder of A Very Important Meeting which is a mindful writing community. Oh what is that? We're gonna find out all about it. April, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
0: It's very exciting to have you, and I just wanna dive right into everything at the same time, but we'll try to keep an orderly process to this. Okay, so you have this book and there's ostriches. Yes, that's what we're gonna say for right now. How did this even come about?
1: It's funny, the title, 142 Ostriches, I had this whole other title and then a mentor of mine. Everyone's going to call it the ostrich book. You should just embrace that. So I ended up changing the title last minute to embrace the fact that it actually is set on an ostrich ranch. It came about because I was actually, very loosely, I started telling the story. It was based on my mom's experiences growing up on a dairy farm mm-hmm. in the Sacramento Valley, but I didn't know anything about dairy ranching. Dairy farming? See, I don't even, I don't even know. <laughs> and I love the desert. I wanted to set it in the desert. And so I was being stubborn and trying to find some kind of ranch that would be in the desert. And I googled and found, it was called the OK Ostrich Corral. As you do when you're a writer, I pitched it as a travel story. And then I went out to write the travel piece and interview the guy who owns the place. And as soon as I got there, I was like, this place is amazing. Ostriches are just these wonderful walking contradictions because in some ways they're really beautiful and graceful. In some ways they are terrifying and scaly and (laughs) almost dinosaur-like. And I was telling the story about family and as most families are full of contradictions, how you can really love someone and still be really angry with them. And when I saw this place it just embodied contradiction, I was like, oh, this is where I have to set my story. So the story is much more about the family, but I just love the setting. I love the desert. Like I said, the contradictions of the birds really suited the story. And that's how it all came about.
0: Okay. I have so many follow up questions. Number one, basic. (laughs) It's called an ostrich ranch and not a farm. Like how come they get to be called a ranch?
1: Yeah. Ostriches, because it's not like a very well-tread path here in the United States, people kind of use the terms interchangeably. I guess a ranch would be the more accurate term, but the way that I've written the establishment is that they they don't farm the animals for meat, like a traditional cattle ranch, and so they sell the eggs, and so that's much more a farm, like a chicken eggs kind of thing. The terminology is a little uh, gray. I kind of use them interchangeably. Yeah.
0: The place that you went to, the OK ostrich. Cr- out. what are they doing with those ostriches there
1: so it's actually not there anymore oh. <laughs> um, i started writing this book a long time ago and the proprietor of the ranch actually passed away in 2017 so oh. it's not there anymore yeah but when it was there, it was a meat and leather operation. So he sold the birds for their meat and then also sold the leather. And then he had things like emptied out eggshells that he sold as novelties and ostrich feathers you can buy. But those are much more novelty items. The bread and butter of his business was meat and leather.
0: I a second. People use ostrich skin as a leather?
1: Oh, it's fancy. yeah. Uh, ostrich leather purses are in the hundreds they're really beautiful because the texture of the leather the, where the feathers are attached to the bite leave this really intricate pattern in the leather huh. it's gorgeous it's gorgeous it's very expensive
0: wow okay <laughs> i don't
1: even own anything made of the ostrich leather i've pined over a few of the items over the years but i just couldn't justify the expense
0: and then the meat he was selling locally or t- within the u.s he was selling that
1: Yeah, mostly locally. There's a market for it in Vegas. The eggs are also kind of a novelty item. You'll see them in Vegas buffets. You have a hard boil them and then slice them up like egg steaks almost. Um, Yeah, so I mean, it's a niche. It's a niche kind of thing. But yeah, there's enough of a market to keep a business going. This is crazy. Okay, okay. And
0: then also you said, Oh, I was looking for a book and writing in the desert. What does that mean? Oh, I was looking to write a book? Was this a lifelong dream of yours? Or how did that even happen?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question, too. I was in a writing program. I had this instinct that I wanted to be a writer. It hadn't had much luck at it yet. But part of my master's program is that I had to write the first half of a novel to graduate. And I wanted to write a novel and was kind of struggling with what was it going to be. I would continue to struggle with that question for many years after I graduated. So it's not like I solved it when I found the ostrich ranch. But that was probably the biggest step forward that I took with the story as I was figuring it out.
0: So you kind of wrote part of it just for the masters and you didn't finish it for some time after that?
1: Well I mean I finished a draft and then started over and then finished a draft and started over. I must have <laughs> written like 14 drafts in 10 years so it was a long process.
0: Oh wow. Were you not doing other writing in between? You are just doing other kind of work in between?
1: I was doing work I was working full time but the novel was the only thing I was working on creatively for myself. Okay. I would get up at 5am and write before the kids woke up before I had to go to work and did that for years and it was exhausting and many times wanted to quit and then my husband would give me a little pep talk and remind me how much I always wanted to write a novel and I'd get back to it and keep working. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, yeah, thank goodness for him.
0: Yeah. So once you did finally finish it and you were ready with it, what was your next step after that to publication?
1: I queried agents and found an agent and then he took it out and sold it to the publisher who ended up publishing his Kensington books. From the time I finished it, it was pretty traditional publishing route.
0: Oh, so you only got the agent after you had finished writing the actual book?
1: Yeah, generally for fiction, at least first-time fiction writers, that tends to be how it works. If you're writing nonfiction, you sell it before you write it. You tend to take the idea out and sell it as an idea or an outline, maybe with a sample chapter or two. But with fiction, they want to see it done before they commit to it.
0: Right. And then how would you summarize? We kind of got some glimpses about what the book's about, but how would you summarize what the book is about?
1: So it's basically the story of a young woman, Tula Jones, whose grandmother leaves her the ostrich ranch when she dies. And the middle generation who gets skipped over for the inheritance all comes to town for the funeral and they're pissed off about being passed over for the inheritance. And all the family skeletons come out of the closet. Like I said, it's much more about the family than the ostriches. It's really about that main character trying to decide, is she going to keep the ranch? Is she going to hold to the pressure of the rest of the family? And about her deciding on what path she's going to take in her own life.
0: Would you say that with or without the ostrich farm, you still have the core of your story, your is all there, but the ostrich farm is just kind of giving it like a new kind of setting to a familiar sort of story?
1: Yes, absolutely. The story itself is really about a family dealing with the death of the matriarch, and that is a story that has been told. I mean, I'm a firm believer in the fact that there is no new story you can tell. Right. There's only different ways of telling them and that was one of the reasons I liked studying on the ostrich ranch or farm or whatever you'd like to call it is that it just gave it a kind of a new angle. It really is the inheritance. The ostrich ranch is the inheritance. So again, that's a story we've heard before of a young woman and her inheritance and what she's going to do with it. But I had never seen a story about this particular kind of inheritance and my character is not quite like any other character that I've seen before and to me that's the essence of good storytelling is to make a story that you've heard before new and interesting and fresh
0: yes absolutely did you sort of have this story in mind before you figured out where you were going to set it or it didn't come to you until you figured out the setting oh.
1: It took many iterations, even after I found the setting. Because you know what? I didn't realize, and this is... (laughs) It's kind of embarrassing that I didn't realize this, but for many, many drafts for years, I went around and around on the story, not realizing that I was writing a story about a family who they're really good at ignoring each other's problems and their own problems. Like, they figuratively, have their heads in the sand. And I had been writing this story about a family with their heads in the sand, and I'd set it on an ostrich rant, and I didn't even realize that until I was on the last draft. And then I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't even realize that. (laughs) And so it's about this young woman pulling her head out of the sand, figuratively and Taking a good hard look at her own life and deciding how she wants
0: to move forward. Ah, very good. Even though it does make sense and it's still kind of funny when you say that, but there's a lot of writers who go through so many drafts and they don't really figure out the story. And that's probably yeah. why they have to go through so many drafts because they're like, narrowing exactly. it down. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you remember off the top of your head because I don't want to put you on the spot with this, but are there maybe one or two kind of crazy facts about ostriches you found out at the farm or even about the caravan or anything about that? Oh
1: my gosh. I know so much ostrich trivia at this point. So one of my- favorites is that johnny cash was almost killed by an ostrich what yeah he was out at some ranch or something and this was he was recovering from one of his bouts with addiction and with drugs and he was getting sober and he was taking a long walk and he came across this ostrich that was living on this land and he didn't have the sense to walk away and the bird attacked him and the way they attack is that they kind of flutter up in front of you and they kick downward they have these big claws on their front toes to gut you basically Uh. and then your guts fall out and you die (laughs) um but he was wearing this, as Johnny Cash was wont to do, giant belt buckle. And so the bird cut him at the sternum, but then hit the belt buckle and wasn't able to disembowel him. So his belt buckle saved his life, but he was attacked by an ostrich. Oh
0: my goodness. And I love that
1: story. And then in terms of the actual ostriches... There's so many. I think the most interesting fact I learned was that bird brains are actually wired differently than mammalian brains. And so when we use that term bird brain to imply that somebody isn't very bright or you know that birds aren't very smart, it's actually completely wrong. It's just that we've always brought our mammalian bias to looking at the structure of a bird brain. But it's the same way of like, if you looked at the bird bones, bird bones aren't like our bones, they're hollow. And it's like birds are all evolved to, in just a different way to be lighter and more compact well maybe not more compact in the case of the ostrich but their brains are so even though their brains are small they're actually really smart arguably very smart there hasn't been a lot of definitive testing on the exact intelligence of ostriches but birds in general are smarter than we think they are
0: i know someone who has a cockatoo big beautiful white bird and she always says that we you call someone a bird brain it's a compliment because birds are so intelligent right? yes
1: yeah, exactly
0: Okay, what's go back to this Johnny Cash story. and He came across an ostrich because that's what people do, apparently.
1: It- <laughs> well, apparently the owner of the land had, like, it was a pet ostrich or something. I don't remember why the ostrich was out there. But it wasn't like he was just walking randomly in the desert and came across an ostrich. It was a privately owned bird on private land.
0: That's something that people do that is considered, like, an exotic pet? To well, I guess it is.
1: I, I guess, Yeah. yeah. I don't know why you'd want one. They're scary. (laughs) Yeah. Tigers too.
0: Yeah. They're officially pretty fast though, ostriches. Are they?
1: Oh, they're very fast. Yeah. Not as fast as a cheetah, but they're very fast. They're like 40 miles an hour fast.
0: Do they have better endurance than a cheetah? Because cheetahs don't go fast for very long.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's their survival tactic is that if they can evade the cats for even the first bit of the run, cats tire quickly. So they're not as fast, but they can run a lot further.
0: Right. And then this ranch farm that's in the desert, was it just because desert has space or do they actually do well in the desert?
1: Well, they're desert animals. They've evolved to live in the desert, but also desert land is cheap here in Southern California. The guy who ran the ranch, he'd been an investment banker in the 80s in New York and really just got fed up and had enough and he'd read something about how ostrich meat was really lean and how it was going to be the new health price of the 80s and he just ordered two breeding pairs of ostriches and had them shipped out to like he bought some land on scene. and was just like i'm going to start an ostrich ranch and that was how he got started
0: that is crazy why big if you can raise ostriches okay
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i think he wanted to be out in nature and the price was right to get started he told me some great stories about all the things he did wrong as he was getting started it was yeah. really interesting not all Bit made
0: into the book, but some of it, some of it did. Oh, wow. That's funny because probably the desert is probably the only thing that you could actually land-wise buy in California these days, so. Yeah, for
1: know. cheap at least.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so just shifting over a little bit. A very important meeting, this writing community. What is it? What's the deal with it?
1: so it started during the pandemic uh, acquaintance of mine we both realized that we were leading once a week with some just writer friends we were hosting online meetings where we were writing but we would start with a short 10 minute meditation and then we'd write for about an hour and we were doing almost the exact same thing and so then we started covering for each other if one of us was going camping or something and then when we asked the people who were in the groups how could this be more useful to you the overwhelming response was we want more meetings so we got a few more teachers on board we added more meetings so we're up to to 17 meetings a week now.
0: Wow.
1: It's all donation-based. We ask for $5 if people can swing it. If not, no big deal. Everybody's welcome. Every meeting is the same basic structure where we just do a silent insight meditation for 10 minutes to focus our minds. And then we go immediately into our writing. And then when the hour is up, we hang out for 15 minutes and just kind of talk like writers do. We talk about what we're reading, what we're writing. We don't do any writing prompts. Nobody has to read their work. It's very low pressure. But it's just been this wonderful community Community. it has been the silver lining of the pandemic for me just I've met so many wonderful writers and it's a pretty self-selecting group of people who want to meditate for a few minutes and then focus on their writing across the board just a great group of people and it's continuing to grow but it still feels very intimate you probably get seven or eight people per meeting and I'm just loving it it makes me very happy
0: nice when you say this meditation thing is there a prompt for that or it's just everyone just clear our minds sort of thing
1: so, I, I'm a trained mindfulness instructor. I'm trained in the School of Insight Meditation. So, I do guide the meditations, but pretty minimally. So, I'll, I'll kind of walk you through, like, okay, now we do this, and now focus on your breath. So, I give really basic instruction, but I keep it pretty simple. And most of the teachers that we do, again, it's very niche. Like, we have one woman, Faith, she's an ordained Buddhist nun, as well as a memoir writer and a travel writer. And so, you know, trying to find people who really fit that very narrow niche to join us as teachers has been a bit of a challenge. But when we do, find people who fit. They're great. They're just wonderful teachers. And the meditations, again, very simple because it's only ten minutes and mostly guided, but also time for just having a little bit of quiet before we get to our writing.
0: Okay, the meditation is—it has nothing to do with the writing per se. It's just about relaxing and focusing.
1: Yeah, focusing your mind, letting go of everything else. At the end of my meditations, I do kind of invite people to bring to mind what they're planning to write as they transition from the meditation into the writing. But the meditation isn't about writing per se in any way, no.
0: And then the hour of writing that follows. Everyone's doing their own thing, but we're all doing it together sort of thing.
1: Yeah, everyone's muted and you're just writing. But when you look up, you'll see on the Zoom screen, you see everybody else is also just working away on their writing. This was the part that surprised me most is I didn't think that would be very interesting or motivating or have any influence on my writing at all. But there is something about looking up and seeing these people that you've logged on with and they're all writing. And so you keep your butt in the chair and you keep writing. Mm -hmm. And then when the hour is up, we talk a little bit and it's just ah, it's great. I really like it
0: yeah because when you hear you're like oh we meditate that we all just quietly write it sounds like uh, but at the same time when you allot the time yeah you know, that's kind of what it is you're of the time you're part of a group but why do you, the people who are leading the session you call them teachers
1: they are meditation teachers we initially oh. we call them meeting leaders because there's okay. not a lot of teaching that we yeah. don't really teach anything but they are teachers by trade
0: oh okay yeah because i was going to ask if there was some sort of writing lesson thing whatever going on
1: No, generally not. No, most of us do have other things that we teach. I have writing classes that I teach and I do some writing coaching, but when I'm leading the meetings for a very important meeting, that's all I'm doing is just leading the meditation and then making sure I sound the timer when the hour is up so everybody knows that the time is done.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Right? It doesn't even matter what someone's writing. You you have no idea what they're writing. Yeah
1: that's part of the brilliance of it though is that i know for myself as a writer i'm often hesitant to join a writing group because i don't know or like are these writers are they more beginner than me or are they more advanced than me and then the anxiety around them what if i'm not good enough right i don't want to have to share what i'm writing right now because it's not very good first draft stuff i don't want to share you don't have to like if, if we have people in the group who are working on their fourth novel mm. we have new york times journalists we have people who've never written anything and they're just writing in their journal because that's what they've decided they want to do for their new year's resolution and we have every shade of writer you can imagine screenwriters, poets, nonfiction, memoir, fiction, short stories. And it doesn't matter we all just get together and just write whatever we're working on and then hang out a little bit and even in the hanging out part we don't share the work i usually go around and be like hey how'd the writing go for everybody and everyone will be like hey had a good morning or i'm struggling a little bit but that's about as deep as we get into what we're working on and then we'll transition into what people are reading or maybe someone has finished an essay and they're not sure what to do with it and someone else will be like oh i heard an editor is looking for just that kind of piece like we'll give each other advice it's very organic. We try not to shape that last portion too much. We just let it be whatever it's going to be. Well,
0: that's great. The other people that you set it up with, you were independently leading groups. And then you're like, hey, I'm doing that too. I'm doing that too. Let's make a community.
1: Well, and that was the weirdest thing is this me and this other woman, Paulette, who's my co-founder, we had independently come to the exact same structure. She was doing it on Saturday mornings and I was doing it on Friday, but we both had come to what worked best was about a 10 minute meditation and then about an hour of writing and then a little bit of hangout time. And so it was just such a natural fit to merge the groups together, help each other in leading the meetings when we needed to, and then adding more meetings. It just really grew easily, very easily.
0: Wow. Do you have meetings almost every day of the week now?
1: We have three meetings a day on weekdays and then one on Saturday morning and one on Sunday morning.
0: Is that when you do most of your writing or do you do a lot of writing also outside that time?
1: It is part of my writing. So I leave the 9.30 a.m. Pacific time meeting Monday through Friday. I usually start writing at 8 when the kids leave for school. And then at 9.30, I'll pause to open up the Zoom room and welcome everybody. And I leave the meditation and then I get back to my writing. So it's kind of a little break for me in the middle of my writing day. But I try to write from 8 to noon every day.
0: Wow. Now that you've said it, it seems oh, of course you'll do this. But putting in the meditation, was that something that you had heard somewhere or put in? Or that's something that you also kind of organically came to of, I think this is good, what's going to help to get into the writing mode sort of thing?
1: Oh, it's just the way I was writing. In the past, when I've tried to do writing groups, I have found that one of the biggest hurdles is that everyone gets online on Zoom and just gets to chatting and then the hour goes by and you haven't written anything and it's like, damn it, I put aside this hour to write right. and yeah. it didn't help me at all. And so something about saying like, okay, we have five minutes to hang out while everyone gets logged on and then we're starting the meditation. And then there's no equivocation about when do we start our writing? Are we getting our hour in? We keep very strictly to that structure so that people know exactly what they're getting. But the reason I started with that structure is that for me when I sit down to write I always meditate for a few minutes before I start just because it allows me to let go of all the other things that are begging for my attention because I can't write otherwise.
0: Yeah that's true. 8 to 12 so what kind of writing are you working on during that time?
1: Mostly fiction. I do some freelance work still. I try to do my freelance work in the afternoon. Ideally, my day is three to four hours of fiction in the morning. But if I'm up against a deadline, sometimes that morning gets devoted to my freelance work. But mostly I'm working on fiction. I'm almost done with my second novel. I've started outlining some other ideas I'm playing with. and I try to write as much as I can.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. How much can we find out about this idea for a second novel? Is it also adult fiction? Are there ostriches in it? What can we find out about this?
1: (laughs) There are no ostriches in it. It's a totally different kind of novel. It's a sweeping epic. It's a bit of fantasy. The basic idea is a, a young couple who are immortal until they decide to have a baby. And it starts in the 1700s and it follows them up through history to modern day Los Angeles.
0: Interesting.
1: It's been a lot of fun to write it, actually. I'm well, really enjoying it.
0: What moved you in that direction? That first we'll have a something that follows the rules of the world, and now we're going to make our own world. Was it... <laughs>
1: I think that's what I wanted to do. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to do something a little more creative, something that broke the rules a little bit. And I love fantasy. I love sci-fi. I love all... But I've always written very traditional narratives, and so this is still a pretty traditional narrative. It's just that it has this kind of magical element where my characters don't age for 250 years. Yeah. <laughs>
0: You say it started like in the 1700s, right? So you do a lot of research for that or you're just like... Oh my God, so much research. Oh,
1: yeah, I mean, it yeah. was the hardest part about... I tell it in seven parts over 250 years, and each one is like a little historical novella. And I had to do all the research of a historical novel for each part of the book. I mean, if I had known what I was getting into, I might have not written it, so I'm <laughs> glad I didn't know. Whose idea was this? Yeah. <laughs> Whose idea was this? Yeah, a lot of research. Yeah. And the actual writing of the story didn't take me very long. I knew exactly what I wanted it to be. But the details, writing in the historical stuff, I spent all day researching something stupid like is there glass in a window in a cabin in the 1800s in northern california yeah. like, did they have glass i don't yeah. know and then that doesn't even end up being a detail in the story it doesn't matter i wasted a day you know it's a <laughs> right. uh, lot of work totally worth it
0: did you write the story first and then go to plug in the historical details or you did all the historical stuff first simultaneously
1: I did enough research to know that I wasn't making any errors that would affect the plot. Oh, yeah. And, and then I wrote it. And then once I knew what details I needed from there, I did more research to fill in some of the smaller details. Like, what is she wearing when she goes to bed in this scene? What did babies wear in 1830s? Things like that. that You don't necessarily need to know to, to get the plot right. Right. But then when you get into the fine-tuning details of the story, it's nice to have your character like buttoning up the baby's nightgown and knowing what that would look like.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, working on the ostrich farm, did that kind of prepare you for, okay, this is what it takes to have to do research for a novel? You're like, ah, no. This was like times a bazillion, a totally different experience. It
1: was times a bazillion, but the same idea. You're doing your homework, getting the details right. It just was a lot more.
0: Right. Because a lot of people always have the question of when you're researching, how do you know that you've done enough? Or how do you know whatever? So, did you kind of just make a marker for yourself? Or was it just like, you know what? Like you said, I feel like I have enough to not screw up my plot with this? Or.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I outlined and researched until I felt like I knew enough that I could get the basic plot on the page. Then I wrote the story because it's always about the characters, really. So then you dive into character and you write how the characters are interacting and then go back to research, find some details. And actually, there were moments where I realized in the second round of research that I'd gotten something wrong. So then I had to change something in the plot. And you just kind of bounce back and forth between writing and research until you feel like you've got a really good handle on everything, all of it. Yeah, that makes
0: sense. Do you always outline or just because this one, the breadth of it, that's why you outlined it? Yeah,
1: yeah. Also, because I didn't outline the ostrich book and it took me eight years to write it, so I swore I wouldn't
0: do that again. Well, there you go. (laughs) I don't usually outline because I feel like as soon as I'm outlining or even when I write myself reminders, I'm like, I already wrote it. Why am I writing it again? Which obviously, Mm -hmm. yeah. But it makes so much sense when you're doing the historical thing. Even you might end up still with your chasing down the log cabin glass thing, but I think it still better gives you an idea of what you have to actually look for because there's so much you can learn about anything. Yeah, it's so true. Well, also, now I'm thinking about it, especially for the ostrich form and stuff. You probably have to pepper it with fact and stuff like that.
1: You want to get enough detail in that it's believable, but you also don't want it to be read like a textbook. There's so many things I learned about ostriches that didn't at all make it into the book because it didn't matter to the story.
0: Yeah. So what is your editor? They just like assume that we read did as good or do they have to start? Wait, let me double check that.
1: Is this really true? you know i don't remember being called out much on the ostrich book i don't remember anyone correcting any of my ostrich facts people will let you know when you get things wrong i'm sure you've had this experience like oh there's a typo on page 12 or whatever but nobody ever called me out on getting anything wrong with the ostriches and i did take a couple of liberties but nobody noticed so interesting either people just don't know much about ostriches or they were caught up enough in the story that it didn't matter
0: We'll just say it's probably both.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with both.
0: I can't deny the second, but the first I would say is probably almost for sure. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and that was the other reason I didn't want to set it on a dairy farm because there are enough dairy farmers in America that I knew I would get angry letters if I got things wrong. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I would get things wrong versus an ostrich farm. I think there's like three of them in the United States. Wow. So I was less likely to get angry letters.
0: So is an ostrich burger a $200 burger in the U.S.? Or do you have any? You idea? know, I've never
1: actually had one. When I went to tour the ostrich farm for the first time and he walked me all around and one of the things he told me about was that uh, his birds had stopped laying eggs, which is part of the premise of my book is that the birds have stopped laying eggs and that's part of the dilemma of can she sell the ranch even if she wants to? So I've made it a different direction in my story, but in real life, it was because the birds had been poisoned by a nearby cement plant that they'd been (laughs) dumping toxins into the groundwater and the birds had been poisoned and so they weren't laying eggs. That's not what it is in my story. That's what it was in reality. So he tells me this whole story and we're walking around and my brain is already starting to kick up. Ooh, I'm going to put this in my novel, blah, blah. And then she says, hi you want to buy some ostrich meat? And I'm like, the ostrich meat that's toxic with chemical waste? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to be nice, I bought some, but I threw it away when I got home because I felt like, I don't know if I want to eat that. Right. Yeah.
0: You're assuming he's probably not going to poison you, but yeah, that does sound iffy. Yeah, but still, I don't
1: know. I was pregnant. I was like, I'm not messing around with possibly toxic ostrich meat. Exactly. No. Yeah. When I was in South
0: Africa, apparently eating an ostrich burger is a thing. I did not do that, and I also have no idea what that was going for. And also, you'd have the exchange rate there. So maybe, I don't know, who knows? It Uh, seems like they have that. The ostriches are there, so who knows?
1: And there's a lot more ostriches in South Africa than there are in California. I think here it's much more of a novelty thing than it probably is there. Yeah. Just simply because there's more meat, more source material, I don't know.
0: Yeah, or more supply. More supply. That's
1: the way I was looking for.
0: It's like when you go to Belgium, they're going to ask if you had a beer that's like... Yeah, right. <laughs> no, yeah. Right. Just ask quickly, because you said something about they sort of took liberties, so especially that it is, the ostrich thing is considered contemporary. Right, would it be? Yes. Yeah, okay. When you're saying taking liberties, so what was the consideration or the allowance of, okay, maybe it's not exactly like this, but it is sort of like this, so it's not that much of a stretch, or was it just, I don't like this fact. But
1: The liberties I took were, for instance, I gave a few of the particular birds very strong personalities, that they're recognizable, and that like this one has an affinity for this one character, like the grandmother character in the book has her favorite, and the bird responds to her almost like a dog would, which is not really how an ostrich works. They're not affectionate like dogs. They're birds. They're just different. So it was within the realm of possibility, but I don't think ostriches really behave that way. I, but I wanted readers to care about them and then making them a little more dog-like just makes them more likable. So yeah, it's, I took a few liberties, but nothing too dramatic.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because now when you're doing historical, I guess it's partially historical fiction, but you're working on now, are you still thinking those kinds of terms? Or you're like, well, I better get all this stuff right because
1: oh, I still try to get everything as right as I can get it. But then the stories about people who don't age. So inherently, there is some artistic license in that because I didn't meet these people. They're not real people. It's fiction. There's always some line of just making things up. But I feel like the more you get right historically in the environment, in the clothing, in the lighting, in the transportation, and the way that things look, the more liberties you can take with the characters and the emotional journey and people will go along with you.
0: Yeah, I would say that probably even applies to fantasy worlds or sci-fi worlds that if you're consistent, when there's logic to it, then they'll, like you said, they'll go with you. Versus if you're all over the place, everyone just, they have no idea what's going on here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, interesting. Okay, one more question then. Not because I want to, but we'll wrap up because that's what has to happen. Anybody who does give you verbal written feedback about your novel, is it always about ostriches? And then Oh yeah, by the way, I like your story. Did anyone leave out the ostriches when they comment about the story?
1: Um, yes wow yeah because like i said it is much more about the family than the birds the birds are more setting than character though some of them do have some personality most of the written things i've gotten are about the family even the people who've been critical they had this one very nicely worded letter from a reader telling me about the typos that he found in the book (laughs) which is crazy to me i mean how many people read i mean even the copy editor at the publishing house and still there were like five in the course of 300 pages five typos that that he found and yeah. he just wanted me to know and that, you know how thoughtful is that that he took the time to tell me yeah and then I forward that to my publisher and it's funny they actually they can fix the digital version like that you know it's done right but the print version there's nothing to be done about that it just is what it is
0: yeah but yeah. that's true because I've read books sometimes I have also picked up on typos even for my books that they've got typos and this was read 400 times how did we <laughs> not see that
1: yeah how did nobody
0: see this yeah. right because then people are like well how the mistake in there they honestly don't know we read it so many it's times i don't
1: know yeah it's amazing
0: i guess it's also just your mind but that means that there are so many minds plugging in the correction just in the mind yeah yeah, who knows?
1: yeah.
0: well okay okay well, one more question actually did your book first okay. come out in hardcover and then paperback or or what's it at right now mm-hmm.
1: No, Kensington decided to do straight to paperback. So they okay. didn't trade paperback, which is the slightly larger paperback that you'll see. Their whole theory is they're really focused on getting people to buy the book. And their theory is that people don't buy the hardcover. They wait for the softcover. So just start there. And you know what? It's not my area of expertise. So I defer to them. And people bought the book. So can't argue.
0: Yeah, great. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that also saves you because you have so many times when people, they'll come out with a book in the hardcover and they might not renew for the paperback and that's kind of the end of the book. But I think paperback, yeah, yeah, publishers are a little bit more willing, I think, to just keep the book in print longer. I could make that up, but I feel like it's correct.
1: Yeah, again, I don't know much about it. And I, I feel very lucky that I don't have to know too much about publishing, that I do have a publisher. Yes. Self-publishing is a whole other area of expertise that you have to learn if you're going to do it. So um, I don't know. Maybe I'll learn it someday. But for right now, I'm, I'm happy to be ignorant of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because there's also distribution and blah, blah, blah. So the publisher takes care yeah. of all that. It's amazing. So much work. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, very good. So just to wrap up with our general fill in the blank of I really like it oh, yeah. when it could be writers, editors, publishers, agents, stories, covers, bookstores, yeah. anything book related. No. I really like it. this and I really don't like that.
1: I really like it when editors find something that doesn't make sense in my story. Oh, yes. Yeah, I really like it. I like knowing that stuff before the book is published. (laughs) Yes. Because, like I said, readers will notice and they will email you about it. So I really like it when people are hard on my drafts because I really want to know. And then I really don't like it when a book that I don't like is super popular and I can't figure out why. Oh! (laughs) It bothers me because, you know, this is my industry. This is my profession. And then people be raving about some book and I read it and I'm like, I just don't get it. Why does everyone love this book? So that really bugs me.
0: That is a really funny, that's a great answer. But you do not have books that you think are so great and people are like, why do you even like this?
1: Yeah, I'm always disappointed when that happens. <laughs> I, <laughs> to each their own. Everyone has their taste. But when the whole country's gaga for some book and I read it, and I just, my only explanation is that it's overhyped by the time I read it. I've heard from so many people how great it is that there's no way it could ever live up to that. That's my only explanation.
0: Yeah, it could be. Sometimes when something's yeah. overhyped, I just stay away from it entirely because I'm like, how good could it be to live up to the hype? But it's also like you're saying, there's no new story to tell. Sometimes there really is no reason for why one story is more popular than another. They're like, no, 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 yeah. because it's so good. You're like yeah, but is it that much better than X, Y, and Z? And they're like, I don't know. It's just really good. You're like, I know it's really good, but there's a lot of really good <laughs> stories out there.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why this one? Why is this one so popular?
0: That's also people like, oh, tips for how you're going to become sell millions of books. You're like, you don't know. Maybe you kind of know. But you don't really, because nobody knows. So no, nobody knows. Yeah.
1: There's no knowing.
0: There's no knowing. Yeah, you know, we're going to leave off with that deeply profound thought. There is no knowing. <laughs> <laughs> April, this is great. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. This was a lot of fun. It was
1: really fun talking with you. Thanks again for having
0: me. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author April Doppel. To find out more about April and her work, please check out the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at OhMyWorkPodcast or check us out at eltenabam.com. music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.